Welcome to the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church Podcast, where we listen, learn, and love together. Our speaker today is Pastor Jonathan Pinato. Father, again, we just invoke your presence and we invoke your Holy Spirit. We've spoken about the corruption of our minds and the corruption of our emotions because of sin and because of the fall of Adam and Eve. And so, Father, now as we explore the corruption that has taken place within our bodies, I just pray that you may lead us and guide us and give us understanding. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Not only do we see a corruption of the mind and of the spirit and of the emotions of, of, of Adam and Eve as, they, as evidenced in their experience of shame, fear, and guilt, but we also see the corruption of their bodies, as suggested by the phrase, you remember, and their eyes were opened. And, and we studied how that phrase, their eyes were opened, has spiritual dimensions to it, has an emotional dimension to it, has a cognitive dimension to it, but it also has a very real physical body dimension to it. That is, their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked and then they went, they literally went and they grabbed fig leaves to cover their nakedness. That opening of their eyes encompassed spiritual, cognitive, emotional, and physical dimensions. And so today, we want to focus on that real tangible, physical consequence of the fall. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 and verses 14 through 18. Genesis chapter 3 verse 14, and here after God has asked Adam and Eve what's happened, the Lord then pronounces the consequences of their action. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children." And your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Verse 17. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. As the divine monologue continues here in Genesis chapter 3, unending hardships are described against humanity and the natural world. Here we begin to see a rupture in relationships, a rupture in the relationship between men and between women, as evidence in that phrase, your desire will be to your husband and he will rule over you. And we're going to take time later on uh, next week to, to spoke, focus more on that phrase there. But we see a, re, a, a rupture in the relationship between men and women. 
In Genesis chapter 4, we will see a rupture in the relationship between siblings in the story of Cain and Abel. And, and later on in Genesis chapter 6, we will just see a, a degradation of, and the rupture of relationships between people in general. And the Bible passage says that, that the earth was filled with violence. People committing violence against other people. And also, a rupture in the relationship between humanity and the natural world. We see it in verse 14 as, as God addresses the serpent. And so I want to just focus specifically on the natural world, though I think in a previous sermon we already highlighted. We highlighted how our world is literally falling apart Isaiah describes the earth as wearing out like an old garment. That's Isaiah chapter 51, verse 6, and I referenced that in a previous sermon. And I was thinking about that, wearing out like an old garment. Now, here's a, a pair of jeans that, that I have. And uh, the, I've actually, I guess I haven't worn these too much. There was another pair that I had previous to this. But you can kind of, can, can you kind of tell a little bit of wear on, the, on these jeans? Right where? Right, right? Yeah, on the knees. I guess that's every time I, I sit and, and not only are they kind of bulging out, uh, you kind of see where the knees are, are bulging out, but not only has the material been stretched, but it's also faded a little bit. Uh, the jeans, I guess they used to be, uh, you know, this darker color down here, but then, as well, especially, and then you can see where I sit down too, right? You know, there's just this, this wearing down. And uh, there's actually another pair of jeans that I had that, especially right toward the jeans just a few weeks ago, about right here, um, it just ripped a hole. It just ripped a hole just from, just from the wear, because that's just what happens when, when you wear things. Um, a few years ago, I had a suit, a black suit that I purchased in, 19, no, in 2000. And I was a poor college student in the year 2000, and so that was the only suit I can afford. And so for the next nine years, that was the only suit that I wore pretty much every single Sabbath. If someone do the math there, how many Sabbaths are that in nine years? I don't know, at least 52 Sabbaths in a year, you know, t- times nine and one day, I pulled those, the pants um, out, of, out you know, off the suit, and I, just, I held them up to the light like this. And believe it or not, I could see right through. I could see right through my, my, my pants. You know, of course, you know, they, were, they, were, they had just been uh, sheared almost. I mean, it wasn't a hole, but I mean, the, the material had just had worn out so much. And I said, okay, I think it's time. I think it's time to buy a new suit. And so sure enough, we, we bought a new suit here. But, that, but that's, that's, how, that's how Isaiah likens the earth. It says the earth is wearing out like an old garment. And, and Isaiah is, is sharing this illustration in the days when people literally only had one garment. And that's the only garment that they wore every single day. Not like today, we have several changes of clothes. But Isaiah tells us that the earth is wearing out like an, old gar- like an old garment. And even with our advancements in science today, we can see the present and the impending effects of climate change, of pollution, of natural disasters, of earthquakes and, and hurricanes. And I was just thinking just a few weeks ago, there was a hurricane that went through, uh, that went through North Carolina. You know, and, and we're here in Jacksonville worshiping on that Sabbath day, and then there's people in North Carolina who have been flooded out and who have even lost their lives. Uh, there's, there's, cha- there's storms, and there's floods, and there's fires, and there's droughts, various diseases and pandemics. The earth is wearing out like an old garment. 
In fact, Jesus, in his prophetic sermon in Matthew 24, he told us as much. Notice what it says here. He said, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginning of birth pains. Jesus said that these would be signs of the end. And what makes these events even more relevant to today is that these events are taking place at an exponential rate. Jesus likened these things to birth pains. And and having just witnessed that firsthand uh, through my wife, uh, it's interesting that contractions, they, they, they first come like maybe once every... 15, 20 minutes, not sure, right? And everyone's different, I think, because I think with hers, they, they came right, like every two minutes right away. But, but, but they, they, they're, they're spaced out, right? And once every 10 minutes, and you're wondering, oh, well, what is that? is that? Is that what I think it is? I'm not sure if that's, is that it? You know, I'm not sure. But then they start coming closer and closer to one another, and then they start intensifying more and more the closer they get. And so I find it fascinating that Jesus used this illustration of these natural disasters and earthquakes and diseases and famines and pestilences in various places. He likened them to labor pains. In other words, what we're seeing in the world today is that it is being devastated at greater and greater lengths and at greater and more intense frequencies. In fact, I think there was just an earthquake, wasn't it, on the island of Indonesia? Yeah, not, not just, you know, again, just a few weeks ago. And, and there were the ones, weren't they the ones that were struck in, two, was it 2004 or, or, or so after Christmas or, or New Year's with that tsunami? You know, and we're seeing this more and more often, and the disasters are becoming more and more intense. It's what Jesus said. It's what Isaiah said. The earth is wearing out like an old garment. Something else that we also see here in the biblical passage of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14, if you'll go back here, it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, again referring to the natural world, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. There is now a rupture, also a curse on the natural world and on animals itself. You will crawl on your, on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And then verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, what is, what is God describing in this passage? He is describing predation. Predation, uh, that of the, the relationship of predators and prey in the natural world. Now, while this passage, yes, is, is spiritual, it's a reference to Jesus and, um, and, and how he would crush Satan under his feet, but this is also a very real, literal passage. The serpent and the animals indeed were cursed. How many of you love, let's take a poll here, how many of you love snakes? How many of you love snakes? All right, we have Sabrina, one, we have a couple people over here, Chloe, um, and, and the little guy there, I forgot his name, um, yes, Dylan, that's right, uh, Zari, you like your, how many is that, four people? Oh, no, five, six? All right, six people, seven maybe. There's a kind of a, all right, you know, add me to the list. I like snakes. Yeah, I do like snakes. I like snakes. But I'm not a snake handler. If Roger were here, Roger's a snake handler. He's like a snake charmer. He'll go and he'll handle snakes. I like snakes. I think they're beautiful. Um, and I wish I could handle them, but I, I really am not at that level yet. Um, in fact, there's, there's, is that snake still outside, that little dead snake? Is that still outside in the entrance? 
Now, we haven't, you saw Byron? We haven't gotten rid of that snake yet. That's been there for like two weeks. I don't know how it died, but it's there at the entrance. But it's dead. Don't worry, it is dead. It's been there for like two weeks. Well, Jerry, we're going to have to clear that out, out there, right? Okay, now let's take another poll. There was like about six, seven, eight people who like snakes. How many of you don't like snakes? Raise your hand. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Whew. All right. I think the, uh, man, we're filled with a lot of haters here, you know, snake haters, man. Yeah, right. But, but this, is what, this is what Jesus is speaking about here. There's, just, there's this rupture now in this relationship of predation. And so if we see a snake, what will we do? Kill it. I've heard that phrase. Uh, the only good snake is a dead snake. Can I, can I tell you a snake story that I had? All right, I mean, let me tell you a snake story that I had. You know, this is probably where my love of snakes began. Is um, I was doing in my previous district, which was Inverness and Bushnell. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that area, but it is, it is, it is. Uh, I don't want to say country. Is that the right word? Country. It's kind of swampy off of I seventy five. You know, kind of north of Tampa. You know, a lot of a lot of Spanish moss. Yeah, it's, yeah. No, so, um, I was I was doing a visit, um, uh, not with a church member, but but a family of a church member. And, and right as I was coming out of their, of their mobile home, um, I stepped down, and, and, they, and their mobile home wasn't closed. And so uh, this is like the door. Pretend this is the door. This is the door, and I'm stepping down, and then they have the screen porched, you know, around the door here, if you can envision it. And right between the step and the porch, there was a little snake that just kind of lifted, lifted his head up out of the you know, out of the steps, just in between that area. And I didn't see it, you know, and I was just walking, and I was saying goodbye to them. And as I stepped down, uh, the, the, uh, the lady there, she said, um, is, is that a snake? And I was like, where? She's like, right down there, because if it's a snake, I hate snakes. She was a little bit older, she couldn't really see well. You know, and so I looked down, and sure enough, there, you know, next to, next to my foot was a little snake, just with his head kind of poked out, looking out like that. And I said, yes, that is a snake. And then she just cried bloody murder, and, and the snake got scared, went, you know, went underneath, and then she came out with the broom, and she yelled to her husband, there's a snake, there's a snake, there's a snake, and came out with the broom, and they got the broom, and they, they, they broomed it out of that little, that, that little crevice there, and then the snake was, you know, kind of just uh, slithering kind of all over the place, and, and then he came out from underneath the, the porched area, and he went underneath the car, and then, and then, and then the husband got in the car, and, and just as the snake was coming from out underneath the car, he ran the snake over with the car. And I'm here witnessing that. And as soon as that tire came over that snake, that poor little snake was like, you know, doing like this. I mean, you know, his back was broken. And, and then he pulled out a gun. I'm not kidding you. He pulled out a gun. All right. And then, he, and then the, the snake barely was able to crawl, crawl out in the grass. And he just started shooting, you know, at the snake. He missed a couple times. I mean, it's point blank, but he still missed. And, and then, but finally he got it. And, and I was there witnessing that, and it was, just, it was just a yellow rat snake. It was a yellow rat snake. That's all it was, you know. And it was, I mean, it was probably about this long, you know. But when I saw that, you know, my heart, my heart kind of went out to that poor little snake, you know. And, and, and since then, you know, I've kind of had a soft spot in my heart for snakes. You know, I respect them, but that was just traumatizing. You know? I mean, it's, uh, and so I don't kill snakes anymore. I just call Roger, and he comes and he takes, care, takes care of them for me. Mm. But, but here is what, what, what God is describing here, that, that now there is this fear. And, and God describes it in Genesis chapter 9 as well, where he says, I will put the fear and the dread of you in animals. And, and so what we see here, again, is the beginning of predation. Humanity at the top and the food at the top of the food chain and all the other animals at the bottom. The number one predator in the world is, are not sharks, great white sharks, 
No, not snakes, but it is humans. In, in fact, I don't know if there's a statistic there, but I'd wonder how many, how many humans are killed by humans rather than how many humans are killed by animals. In the 1800s, you've heard the story of how our great plains were decimated with the buffaloes. They were killed. Those are the skulls of buffaloes there, a picture taken from the 1800s. Without, rest- without restraint, humanity is the top predator. Without restraint, humanity will cause the extinction of various species. What God is outlining here in these passages is the beginning of predation. But not only does predation take place between humans and animals, but predation also takes place between animals themselves. And I remember as a child when my innocence was taken away, it was a rude awakening. And National Geographic, you guys remember how wonderful National Geographic was, and they just showed you all these amazing things about the natural world. And then one day as a child, I turned on the channel, and there was National Geographic. Oh, and I was like, oh, lions. I love lions. Oh, a baby zebra. Oh, I love baby zebras. This is, oh, I love that music. It's so epic. Oh, oh wait. Wait, what, what's that line? Wait, why is that line chasing that? Oh, oh, oh. Oh, phew. baby zebra made it. Oh, phew. at least that round the baby zebra made it. Um, I don't think I like lions anymore. Oh. Predation. Modern evolutionary theory suggests that predation and and death is part of life. That it's how life continues to exist on this earth. That lion needs to eat, and it's true, that lion does need to eat, and that lion is a carnivore. That lion does not eat vegetables. That lion eats other animals. Modern evolutionary theory suggests that predation and death is a necessary part of life. It is how life continues to exist on this earth. Death is necessary because it furthers life. Death is the mechanism or the agency of our survival. Have you heard that phrase, survival of the fittest, right? And to a certain extent, it is true. If you are here today, um, it is because your ancestors had the strongest genes or the smartest genes, or they didn't succumb to illness or, or disease or death, or they were cunning and they could get out of a bad situation, and so you're still alive today. But those with the weak genes, those with the infirm genes, those have been taken out. There was also this, this book that I was reading about this subject here, um, which evolutionary theory then tries to understand cunningness and deception and lying. And it shared the example of an insect uh, in the Amazon. And this insect reproduces, um, and this is their mating ritual of, of reproduction. Maybe, I don't know if it's similar. Yeah, humans, we have our mating rituals, don't we? Um, <laughs> you know, our ways of trying to find a mate or a spouse, right? You know, we try to impress them, right? I mean, who didn't try to impress the person that you were, that you were trying to, uh, to win over? No? Nobody tried to impress them? No? Yeah, Charles, I, I was trying to, yeah, you know, Brother Leonard, Chavars, Byron was trying to impress them. You, Byron would sing to Melanie, you know, sing, you know, uh, what, what do they call it, standing outside her window with the guitar singing, you know, a sonata or a serenade. Yeah, right? We try to impress it. And so this insect here, very fascinating, this insect 
the way it goes about its, its mating ritual is that this insect will find the male will find another male, and they will, they will fight. Um, they will fight to the death, and then whoever wins, then that male then carries the, the male that they, you know, they killed or whatever and carries it to the female as a sign that it has what it takes to survive, that it is the strongest. Now, what scientists have observed is that there are a couple different types of males. And there is a male among this insect breed that is a little bit more cunning and a little bit more deceptive because, you know, chasing after another male and then fighting to the death, that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. Um, and then carrying that male to try to find another female, that takes a lot of time with a lot of energy. And so there's another male that is cunning among this insect breed. And what that male will do is that it will pretend, now listen to this here, it will pretend that it is a female. And it attracts other males who have already had the battle and the fight and everything. And when it attracts that male, and so he's bringing the other dead male with him, attracts that male, quickly kills that male, takes the other dead male that that other, you know, that that, that other insect has, and then goes to the female. That's smart. That's cunning. I mean, cut out a couple steps there, right? You know, just, you know, did a shortcut to the whole process. Evolutionary theorists and scientists are now using that example to justify lying in humans, also transvestism in humans, transgenderism in humans as a place in, in our, in, in our, uh, in our uh, world for survival. Isn't that interesting? Another example I read about was about the ant. They said that the ant is the most um, ruthless of all insects. That the ant has only one type of policy as far as foreign policy, and that is kill and destroy. And it says that ants will take over other ant colonies They'll, they'll kill other ants. They'll enslave other ants. Uh, their, their, their foreign policy is world conquest, world dominion. They said that if ants had access to the button, and you know what I mean by the button, weapons of mass destruction, that that button would have gotten pressed multiple times over if it were up to ants. But yet the Bible says, learn from the ant, thou sluggard, or go to the ant, Thou sluggard. Well, what is this that we're seeing? We're, we're, we're seeing good, but then we're also seeing evil. The knowledge of good and evil. Modern evolutionary theorists and scientists are trying to take these same principles and they're trying to apply them to human life and to human values. And so death, they say, must be accepted as a part of life. Death is good. And the persuasiveness of this argument, and this is some of the brightest minds that are coming up with these theories and, and studying these things, uh, the persuasiveness of this argument is that it is true, but it's also false. Yes, the death of one animal provides food and life for other animals. Yes, death is a part of life on this earth. Yes, death must be accepted, but when we think about it deeper, we have this innate sense about us that death is not good. 
when it's applied to human life. Maybe even when it's applied to, to animal life. I mean, as I saw that lioness chasing that zebra, and then you see the rest of the clip, you realize, yes, I know that lion needs to eat, but there's just something that, that just isn't, isn't right about the way he has to eat. And we recognize, right, feeding duckies bread is good, right? Feeding chicks with grain is, is good. Little chicken chicks is good. But again, the way that lioness and that baby zebra, you know, we recognize that there's something different there in that relationship. And this, my friends, is the difference between a secular and a Christian worldview is that we realize that death is not how things are meant to be. Even death in our own experience, we realize that it is not good. The Apostle Paul tells us, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. And I find it very fascinating that that Paul is using the same language that Jesus used in Matthew 24, when he likened the signs of the end to labor pains. And here Paul is saying the whole creation, the created world, they are groaning as in pains of childbirth. Animals and the created world are suffering as well. And Isaiah envisions that moment of redemption and of restoration of the new world when he says, and the lion and the lamb will, will feed together. In fact, if you take a close look at this, uh, this picture here, there's actually zebras right there. You know, so the zebras make it. They're okay. You see the zebras there? They make it. They're okay. And the lion here and the lamb, you know. We recognize that, yes, death may be a part of this world, but death is not the way things should be, whether in human life or whether in the animal life as well. But there's a rupture here, what Genesis speaks about in the natural world and the relationship between humans and the created world. Now, what I want to do now is um, let's read verse 16. Verse 16, Genesis 3, 16. Now, I want us to move into the rupture in human relationships and the corruption of our bodies with a special focus on women here. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. Do you have it? And to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. For the woman, conception, pregnancy, and childbirth, a blessing pronounced upon her from the beginning. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 1 where God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. A blessing pronounced on her from the beginning would now be accompanied by pain and by suffering. There is still conception after the fall, something that is good. It's a symbol of life. It's life itself, but it will come with a cost, and that price is suffering and pain. Again, here we see the outworking of the new order of things. The order Adam and Eve chose, no longer would they just know what good is. They would also know what evil is. And in this passage of Genesis 3 and verse 16, there are actually two different words that are used here to describe the pain that women experience. And I I think the King James actually uses, uh, let me see here, I think they use the same word. It says, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, and in sorrow that shall bring forth children. So the King James actually uses the two same words for pain, sorrow, and sorrow. 
But there's actually two different words in the Hebrew. Um, it's, it's itzvaon and esev. Two different words. Now, they are related. I don't know if you can see the, the same, the same uh, roots here. The ayin, the tzade, and the beith. And it's sev here, the, the ayin, the tzade, and the beith. So they are related. They have a similar base, but they mean two different things. Uh, the, the first one there, itzavon, it, it has this idea that includes more than physical pain. And, and itzavon is the first word that is used in this passage in verse 16. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Itzavon is that first word. Or I will multiply thy sorrow in thy conception in the King James Version. Itzavon is that first word there. And this word here includes more than physical pain. It also includes emotional distress and anxiety. Uh, the other word, itself focuses more on the physical pain, the aspect of physical pain. But there's also two other words that are used in this passage to refer to childbearing. And we'll read it here in the passage. I will make your pains in childbearing. There's the first word. In childbearing, heron. That's the first word there. Right here, and I think the King James says conception. That's the first word, heron. And then the second word that is used is with painful labor, or in the King James again, in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and that's the Hebrew word, yaleif. And what these two Hebrew words mean, they describe both the process of labor, the actual act of labor, of giving birth to a child, and childbearing, but it also is a reference, heron, the first one, is a reference to conception, a general term for pregnancy in all its phases. Is that clear as mud or what? Is that clear? So we have a general term, the first one, heron, the first word that's used in Genesis 3.16, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. That is a general term for, for conception or for bearing children in all its phases. And the last word, in sorrow you will bring forth children. The second word is the more specific word used for labor and for delivery. By the use of multiple forms, listen here, by the use of multiple forms of the word for pregnancy in all its stages... A comprehensive term for human female reproduction and all that it entails by the use of multiple words for pain, for sorrow, for anxiety, for emotional distress. The author here seems to be conveying the idea that any form of pain related to women's health is included here. Yes, not just the pain of delivery, but the pain of any health complication that could arise. The loss of a child in the Bible, the case of Bathsheba and David, miscarriages, stillbirths, infertility, as witnessed in the life of Sarah, of Hannah, and Rebecca, maybe even the death of the mother, as evidenced in the life of Rachel as she was bearing Benjamin. And in our modern understanding of women's health, any pain and any illness associated with it and stemming from it. Now, my wife told me to stop there. So my wife told me to stop, but I, I added another paragraph, if you guys don't mind. And hopefully this won't get me in trouble. She said, people will understand if you just say women's health and leave it there. But I just want to say one more paragraph. So much of who a woman is 
how she feels. And women, correct me if I'm wrong. So much of who a woman is, how she feels, how she thinks, how she views the world, her self-image and her self-esteem, her ability to function in the world stems from it. And now, month to month, for the rest of her life, her body may at times betray her, may incapacitate her, at other times may serve her, but ultimately the body is no longer what it once was. But despite it all, she must smile, grin, and bear it, for there is little sympathy in this world for her. And we'll leave it at that. There is, however, another aspect of the pain that is caused by sin in this passage, the pain caused towards women in this passage. And I want to return to the word shame. As alluded to in this passage, their eyes were opened, and they saw that they were naked, and they went to cover themselves because they were afraid. There's another aspect to the pain that is caused by women. Some scholars believe that the shame here or that the pain here could include the shame and the pain that derives itself from abuse, including sexual abuse. Perhaps then this passage, in conjunction with the preceding clause of man ruling over women, is a foreshadowing of violence against women in all its forms. Notice what Dobash and and Dobash said here. The seeds of wife-beating lie in the subordination, in the subordination of females and in their subjection to male authority and control. This relationship between women and men has been institutionalized in the structure of the patriarchal family and is supported by the economic and political institutions. And we are going to go there this morning. Supported by the economic and political institutions and by a belief system, including a religious one, that makes such relationships seem natural, morally just, and sacred. Like I said today, we're going to revisit that phrase, and and man shall rule over you uh, in our next sermon next week. And my sermon for that one is the corruption of the male person. But we'll spend more time on that phrase, exactly what it means. But I believe that we're witnessing this before our eyes today. Do I say it? Dare I say it on a national level? Some call it poetic justice. What normally happens in the shadows and in private is now coming to light on a very public level. Hashtag the Me Too movement. In politics today, in the proceedings that are taking place within these last weeks in Washington, D.C., for a nominated judge to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States of America. In a previous sermon, we saw that it happens even in religion with Bill Hybels and and Willow Creek in Chicago. and, and, And we just, even after that, we saw the Ariana Grande. Did you see that one there? At Aretha Franklin's funeral. And, and, and you're wondering, did that really happen? Is that what I saw? Is, it, it, it happens in educational settings. It happens in professional settings. And it happens in domestic settings as well. This is a tweet here. People rarely lie about being abused. 
Abusers, however, almost always lie about abusing. So the odds are that an alleged victim is telling the truth. In fact, reports of sexual assault are, ni- are true 95% of the time. Here's another one from a father. Call me crazy, but I think having 17-year-olds worry that any sexual assault they commit now might follow them around for the rest of their lives would be a great thing. Just one amen? Amen. From a mother. As a mother of teenage daughters, we are having so many hard conversations about harassment, about sacred sexuality, about consent, about safety, and and, and, and of respect. And she continues. As a mother of young sons... We are having conversations about harassment, about sacred sexuality, about consent, about safety and respect. Both conversations are important. And then as I was preparing this sermon, God brought this verse to my mind. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget the law and deprive the oppressed of their rights. Some translations say, and they deprive, instead of saying deprive the oppressed of their rights, they say, and pervert justice. Seventh-day Adventists have long discouraged the use of tobacco and alcohol and recreational drugs. Alcohol, you know, was once illegal in this country. During the Prohibition era, was it the 1930s? We outlawed it because for a moment as a nation, we saw the evil effects of alcohol upon society. Husbands spending all their money on the vice, leaving their spouses and their children destitute. Uh, Fathers and men caught in addiction, in rage, in violence, in murder, in crime. How many lives haven't been ruined by alcohol, whether directly or indirectly? Remember back in the 80s, I don't know if it's still around or not, MAD. That, 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 that acronym, MAD, I don't know if it's still around or not. Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. You know, we're innocent, we're victims, we're just driving, we're, we're minding our own business, but yet someone who, who, has, who is drunk and driving comes and hits you, and, and they're fine, the drunk is fine, but you've lost family members, you've lost loved ones, you've lost friends. Hmm. And it mentions keen and rulers back in those days because the keen and the ruler was both the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judicial branch. It was the kings and the rulers who would decree what was right and what was wrong. Today in our country, we've separated our branches of government to the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. But I think that this Bible verse maybe still applies. It is not for rulers, it is not for leaders to crave beer, lest they drink and forget the law, what's right and what's wrong. doesn't matter how old you are. And deprive the oppressed of their rights. Seventh-day Adventists, and this is actually Adventist Heritage Month, so I'll just drop this little tidbit here for you guys. Seventh-day Adventists, back in the, the pioneers, they were socially active. Uh, they were at the forefront of social activism. Uh, many of our pioneers were abolitionists. And from the north, they would come to the south and they would, and they would speak to the slave owners and try to get them to, to release their slaves. And you can bet that they weren't met with, uh, with positive results. 
our Seventh-day Adventist pioneers were all about temperance. In fact, you've heard about religious liberty, right? The religious liberty campaign that we had. Well, it was a combination back in the days, religious liberty and the temperance movement. Temperance movement being a push to, um, to, to um, make alcohol illegal in this country. And I spoke recently to somebody in the religious liberty department and it says, we've actually lost hope. That, that temperance, that prohibition will ever, ever happen in this country ever again. So now we just focus on religious liberty. It's interesting that one of the arguments for those in favor of the legalization of marijuana is that they say, look, alcohol and the effects of alcohol are actually worse than the effects of smoking and using marijuana. And the truth is, they're right. They're right. Now, that doesn't mean that Using, legalizing marijuana is right, but they're right about their observation about the effects of alcohol on society. We promoted a few years ago, this, or a few weeks ago, the summit on abuse. It is still available um, on, the, on their Facebook page. Just go to Facebook page. I actually put it on our church's Facebook page as well. End it now, the summit of abuse. In Genesis 3, we see the rupture of relationships between men, between women, between nature. We see the corrupting influence of sin upon our bodies, no longer functioning the way they should or the way that we would like. In our next sermon together, we'll consider the corruption of man and their relationship. As outlined here, your desire will be toward your husband, and he will rule over you. But for this morning, I want us to end on a note of hope. Because here in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, when Paul says, the creation is longing and groaning, for their redemption and their deliverance. He continues in verse 23 and he says, not only they, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. How we would long for God to heal our bodies and he will heal it. Ultimately, he will heal it at the second coming of Jesus. In fact, we sang about it this morning. I'm trading my pain. I'm trading my sorrows. I'm trading my sickness for the joy of the Lord. This podcast is brought to you by the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. Connect with us on www.jaxsda.org or on Facebook and YouTube. We look forward to sharing more inspiring messages with you.